With the heart, one believes, and with the mouth, one confesses. Here we begin in this beautiful passage, Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. I'm not going to comment too much on this because I want to tie the, this, this particular verse, verse 8, into the, the close of the message. But what does it say? The word is near you. Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, A.W. Tozer says that God is perpetually speaking into his universe, that he is closer to us than we are to our own thoughts, that God is in this place, and the problem is, is that often we do not know it. The presentation, the continual presentation of the gospel is the means by which the living Christ makes his presence known. When you come to church on a Sunday, the desire should not be to learn new information. The desire should be to meet with the living Christ and God uses the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of human conduits through the various ways in which we minister to one another as a means of making Jesus in his presence known. This is not a classroom. This is a place of worship. And what I love about this passage, he says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And this is why we must continue to preach the gospel week in and week out. But he goes on to say, because if you confess with your mouth, and here is the central statement. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but often I will end a sermon with these three words. And I believe that they are the three words that wield absolute authority in the believer's life and is the key to our understanding the fact that it is God who has accomplished all that needs to be accomplished and our responsibility is to proclaim that in both word and deed. If you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Not just that Jesus is Lord, because to say that Jesus is Lord is to insinuate that he is alive. It's to say that he is the rightful ruler of all that is, but he can't be the rightful ruler of all that is if he remained dead after he was crucified, which is the central tenet of the Christian faith. It's why the resurrection is what we call God's stamp of approval upon the atoning work of Christ on the cross. In other words, the early church, its central witness of those eyewitnesses was this, that we follow Jesus Christ as a teacher, as our rabbi, we watched him be crucified as a common thief, but after three days he rose from the dead and he appeared to us. This is what John says, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have heard with our ears, and which our, what our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The word is near you. And I think that this beautiful proclamation, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that Jesus did not go back to the earth the way that all of us do. He was buried, but he rose from the dead. And he wasn't just 
resuscitated, but resurrection insinuates something altogether new. It's more like metamorphosis. It's more like, more like a caterpillar to a butterfly. A, a butterfly is not a caterpillar with wings like I used to draw as a little boy. It's something altogether different, and yet it carries within it the very DNA of what it was before, but and yet it's something altogether new, something glorified. This is why one of the most powerful things about the resurrection stories is that every time Jesus appeared to his disciples, they did not recognize him at first. His glorified body, there was something new about it. There was something different about it, and yet there was something familiar. And that gives me great hope that I will be one day handsome. <laughs> I will be so beautiful, you will not recognize me in that heavenly estate. But the power of the, the resurrection body, uh, this, 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 this proclamation that Jesus is Lord is directly tied to the idea that Jesus is Lord because Jesus conquered death. Even more than that, he conquered the very thing that keeps us from God, which is sin. He conquered the enemy that continually tempts us to sin and is trying to lead us into death. If Jesus has come to give us life and to give it abundantly, the devil has come to give us death and to give it to us abundantly. It's one of my favorite lines in, in um, Paralandria by C.S. Lewis where Weston, the unman, who has become possessed by the devil, and he says, I have come to give you death and to give it to you abundantly. Those who proclaim Jesus as Lord are casting their hope upon the only one who has conquered death and sin and the dominions of darkness and has ushered in an entirely new creation. He is the firstborn over a new humanity. And I, I love this because it, to say Jesus is Lord is to say that I am no longer the one in control. To say Jesus is Lord is to say, I am not. To say that he's the king says that you cannot any longer, as one who has put your trust in him, continue to try to reign or rule over your life and your existence. And here is the greatest challenge and the greatest rub of the Christian life. The thing that creates the greatest amount of difficulty for us and why we are indeed stumbling toward eternity is because the natural default setting of the human heart is to return again and again to this false idea that we have the right to define for ourselves right and wrong without consequences. And we know that's not true. We know that human existence has this uncanny ability to make an absolute mess out of the gift of life. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the thing that we need to be saved from more than anything else is ourselves. He goes on to say, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, notice the, these two things. Not only do we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we are confessing something that we believe. And belief, as I have stated before, faith is not just simply believing that Jesus is who he said he is, but belief is a trust in Jesus to actually do something for us. It's an active reality. It's, it's the same thing that you have when you, 
when you put faith in Tylenol. You, you aren't saying you believe Tylenol exists. You're actually putting your faith in the idea that if you take this thing, it'll make your headache go away. It's a disposition of trust toward an object that allows the object to do something for you. You're sitting on the pew that you're sitting in right now, and you did not even think about it, but you exercised faith in this thing to be able to hold you up without falling on the ground. That is the reality of a saving disposition. And so this, this trust, this confession with your mouth is meant to align with what it is that you believe. I, I had this, this, um, this Christian tell me when I first became a believer, uh, he, said, he said, listen, just fake it till you feel it. How many, have you, how many of you as Christians have heard that, that statement? Fake it till you feel it. Was that, was that like a... Was that like a discipleship tool that's supposed to be encouraging? Like, listen, it's not real, but if you say it enough times, it will be eventually. That's, I didn't, I don't know. I just always found that like, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. I, I, like, I know what I've been saved from and I know who I've been saved to. What do I, why would I need to fake something until I feel it? No, I, I think here's the thing is that the amount of faith that we have in Jesus is not what is the central issue. It's the one in whom we've placed our faith. And Jesus says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, which is essentially a very small seed, <laughs> that you can tell this mountain to jump into the sea and it will do so. Which tells me that faith is not the thing that saves you it's the object of our faith that saves us, and that's Jesus. So the smallest amount of faith in the God that saves is enough to be saved. And that is a powerful reality because I have been around too many churches that seem to want to front load the gospel and back load the gospel. Well, you're not really saved until you stop doing this and start doing this. You aren't really saved until you do that. And here it's just fascinating to me. It kind of just takes those categories away. It just says, whoever says Jesus is Lord. It, 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 it's not even like, it doesn't even qualify as what has been traditionally taught as the, the sinner's prayer. Although I would argue that it actually, it, it encompasses all of those realities. Because to say Jesus is Lord is to accept his rule over your life, which includes his ethics, his kingdom, which means that you now are accepting his definition of what is right and his definition of what is wrong. But here is the problem with front-loading the gospel. It doesn't say understand all of the principles of the kingdom before you put your faith in the king. It's the king invites us to come and walk with him. And the fact is, is we will spend a lifetime discovering what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And what we will discover again and again is that if it wasn't for the fact that he did the saving, we would be lost. This is a beautiful passage because it brings it to the simplicity of a child. Whoever can, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It reminds me of when Hattie was a little girl and she was going to meet Grandpa Al for the first time. And 
she says to me from the backseat, knowing that I haven't seen my dad in five years and knowing she had never even met him, she said, Daddy, I love Grandpa Al. And I said, because I'm a good father, you can't say that. You haven't even met him. Obviously, my own daddy issues were coming out in full force in that moment. And Hattie goes, I love him. And I'm like, why are you saying that? He wasn't even there. I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm, she's like my three-year-old therapist. I'm like, he wasn't even there for me. Um, and she said, he's your daddy, which means he's my grandpa, and that's why I love him. I think of the words of Jesus, let the little children come to me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have the humility of a small child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Faith like a little child. There is a simplicity that is involved, I would argue, in the presentation of the gospel as well as the receptivity of the gospel. If the gospel is so complex that you don't understand what it is that you're hearing, then I would say that it is a different gospel because the gospel is actually never been meant for the wise and the arrogant. In fact, it says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's the one who recognizes that they have nothing and that Jesus might be their only hope and their faith may be so small that they're not even totally sure that who they're talking to is real, but it's enough that they're saying, this is all I've got. And I, I saw that with my dad. When my dad said that he prayed to receive Jesus, I was like so shocked by that because I never thought that Al White would accept Jesus Christ. But when I asked him about it, he says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for my sins. I'm like, where did you even get this language? Because he never let me talk long enough to get it from me. Because anytime I tried to talk to him about Jesus, he'd tell me to F off and hang up. But luckily, there's a chaplain that was extremely patient with him. That over the years, time after time in ICU on, at death's door, and somehow my dad would get nursed back to health, he responds one day to the gospel. And he prays to receive Jesus. Well, the, the chaplain calls me and says, your dad prayed to receive Jesus, but he's, he's really doubting it. So I called dad and I asked him and he says, yeah, I'm not sure that it stuck. I did it, but I'm not sure that it stuck. And my response is, I am positive that the work of Jesus and his grace is stickier than your doubt. But some would say, no, no, you can't say that to him because, because you don't know that he's saved. And I would just simply say, and you don't know that he's damned. But what I do know is that it says that whoever confesses with their, with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. So, I don't know, argue with scripture. You want to front load it? You want to add a, to do this? You tell me my dad can't be saved until he's no longer an alcoholic or until he stops smoking. Or, you know, you can't be saved if you, you know, you're, you're doing this or that. I'm, I promise you that whatever sins you think you cleaned up before you got saved, there was a million other sins you didn't even know about that should separate you from God for all of eternity because that's the human condition. When Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her, the point is, don't look at women lustfully. The point is, everybody's an adulterer. And then, probably, don't do that. 
but you're going to. That's essentially what he's saying. And this is why we need a savior. Because he also says the great and challenging statement, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And can anyone be perfect? Jesus, was he lying when he said that? Was he putting, was he messing with us? Because he says to the young rich ruler who comes to him and says, Lord, Lord, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Good, good teacher, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And he says, why do you call me good? There is none who is good but God. And you know what the young rich ruler is saying to that? Uh, what Jesus is saying to that young rich ruler in that moment? You're not good, and I'm God. That's what he's saying. He doesn't deny that he's good. He just wants to know why he thinks he's good. That he might point out to him that there aren't any that are good. That's weird. That kind of aligns with Romans. For there are none who are good. No, not one. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. So the heart that believes in the mouth that confesses, it seems to be devoid of any human effort other than a simple yes to his yes. I love Robert Farrar Capone's beautiful statement that will make some of you uncomfortable because Capone had a way of playing on what would be, he would be accused often of, of easy beliefism or cheap grace. And he says, hey, never accuse me of cheap grace. Grace is never cheap, but it is always free. But he goes to say this about faith. Faith is something that I shall resolutely refuse to let mean anything other than trusting Jesus. It is simply saying yes to him rather than no. It does not necessarily involve any particular theological structure or formulation. It does not entail any particular degree of emotional fervor. And above all, it does not depend on any specific repertoire of good works, physical, mental, or moral. It's just, yes, Jesus, till we die. Just letting the power of his resurrection do in our deaths what it has already done in his. What a beautiful statement. I don't care how much on the fringes that man got occasionally to heresy. That statement is not one of them. And everybody's a heretic somewhere. Someone asked me, like, who do you, who do you really trust? I'm like, Jesus? <laughs> like, what theologian do you just really, re-? I'm like, I, I like them all a little bit. <laughs> Philippians 2.11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God and Father. 1 John 4.2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. This is why Door of Hope puts such an incredible emphasis upon the necessity of confession. And as I often talk about confession, confession and repentance go hand in hand. Repentance is a change of direction about who's going to be God, who's going to be king in your life. I was going this way, now I'm going to go this way. I was, I was the one in control, now Jesus, you're the one in control. Repent, repentance is more than I'm sorry. It's saying, Lord, I, am, I will follow you. 
Where else shall we go? You alone hold the words of life. The confession is the continual crying out, Jesus is Lord, Jesus save me, Jesus I believe, help my unbelief. Because we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. And the fact is, is that confession is one of those things where God has given us physical bodies and these abilities to communicate in various ways the realities by which we believe fundamentally in the depths of our being. For the heart speaks of the mind, the will, the, the center of the human personality. I am convinced in the depth of my being that Jesus Christ is Lord. Though I may have doubts, though my faith may be primitive, I trust that this is the only, this is the only reasonable possibility in front of me. And I cast my dependence upon this person. The bottoming out that, that manifests in trust. But I think that, that the power of confession is this, is that in Scripture we see again and again that faith in Jesus is communicated through the mouth. Sorry, that was my finger on the microphone. That sin leaves the body through the mouth. We're called to confess our sins to one another, our brokenness. All of these things are meant, confession is meant to humble us before God and before one another. Confession goes beyond just Jesus is Lord, Father, forgive me. But it also goes on to proclaim to the world the confession of faith as a church, as a community, as a preacher, as an individual. All of us are to be witnesses to our King. All of these things happen through the mouth. But we will say none of these things if the heart doesn't believe it. And that's why you can't separate from what is said from what is actually fundamentally believed. Even if it's believed dimly, it still has to, it has to be settled as a, I am going this direction no matter what. And I think that this beautiful picture of faith, I, I always love that idea of the flying. You put your faith in an airplane. And I'm watching a new TV show about an airplane crash. And it makes you ask yourself why would anyone ever get inside a, a, a metal cylinder and allow themselves to be hoisted into the air because we don't do that we don't fly and yet we do and all it takes is just enough faith and an ambient to get from point a to point b <laughs> think of ambient as the holy spirit <laughs> that gets you out of the way and allows the peace of god to rest upon you until you land it also makes you snore and can cause potentially cognitive issues, but they don't know for sure. <laughs> Look at the next passage with me, because now we see the Lord of all and the whosoevers. In verses 11 through 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction. Notice, everyone who believes in him, not it doesn't, it, it, there's, no, there's no you're in, you're out. This is everyone who says yes to his yes. Now don't get me wrong. Nobody can come to him unless he is drawn. But we have to connect that with if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. There is always tension in scripture. 
um, and we have to allow those passages to create that tension. But here we see everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I like what Karl Barth says about this God who desires, as we're told in 1 Timothy, that all men be saved. Let me just ask you a question, first of all, before I read that quote. If God desires all people to be saved, should we desire it? Why are some Christians so excited about people going to hell? That seems kind of counterintuitive to me and sort of fighting against the very desire of God. And if it's God's desire then should we not hope for it? Should we not pray for it? And do you think the future is as written and as immovable and determined, so determined that there's no point in praying for the lost because God's already chosen who he's chosen, and why, why, why would we do that? What's the purpose of it? Well, I don't know. We're told that we should and we're told that prayer actually seems to make a difference. It actually changes the mind of God. Now people will say, no, no, it doesn't. Prayer doesn't actually change anything because God is unchanging. Listen, don't apply Greek philosophy to God. He is not the unmoved mover. He is the moved mover. He is deeply emotional. He's a jealous. He's kind of a, like really jealous. He sometimes gets really angry although he seems to be able to hold his anger better than humans. He's merciful. And God does not diminish his sovereignty if he is sovereignly declared to give us a limited freedom. And let me just say, it is way more limited than we like to admit. To be able to say yes by the illumination of the Spirit to his yes does not bring some sort of meritorious action to our lives. You saying yes to God's finished work over you is not adding a thing to what he has done for you. And I think that there are those that would say, that, no, no, even to say yes is to bring works. No, there's no work in that. It's just like accepting the gift. And I love this passage. What God is, he wills to be for man also. What belongs to him, he wills to communicate to man also. What he can do is meant to benefit man also. No one and nothing is to be so close to man as he, God. No one and nothing is to separate him from him. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. What are we told under the new economy of the gospel, it says that there is now neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ. And I, I'm struck by this because there's a fascinating passage. Two passages I think of. Think of the terrifying passage that Jesus brings at the end of Matthew when he gives the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says at the final judgment, he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be on his right side and the goats will be on his left. And he says to the goats, he said, listen, when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. 
And the goats immediately begin to defend themselves. And they say, Lord, we didn't, when did you do these things? We, we, nev- we never, we would never have done that if we had known it was you. And he says, when you didn't do this to the least of my brethren, you didn't do it to me. In other words, once again, we cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with one another. It can't be done. You can't look away from your neighbor without looking away from God. Very important principle. But then he says to the sheep, he says, you know, when I was hungry, you, 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 you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When, when I was naked, you clothed me. And they're like, Lord, when do we do that? And he said, every time you did that to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. And if that was the only passage that we had in the New Testament to define the kingdom of God, I would say that the only way that one is saved is by their works. That's the only conclusion that you could come to from the parable of the sheep and the goats if it was not placed in the context of the whole scripture. But there's a passage that really messes with this. I mean, really messes with it. A couple, actually. I think of the paralytic that is lowered through the roof by his friends. We don't even know if the paralytic was conscious. It doesn't say anything about it. It just says that he was paralyzed and the friends lower him in the roof to Jesus. And it says, Jesus, seeing the faith of his friends, tells the paralytic, arise and, sin no, and your sins are forgiven. He forgives the sins of the paralytic and, and brings healing to his body not because of anything he did or said, for all we know, he could have been unconscious, but mysteriously, the faith of his friends were the motivation for Jesus showing this man grace, which is what he does to all of us. So if we're like, well, that's crazy. That doesn't fit into any particular theological grid. I think that that's the thing, is God shouldn't be fit into any grid. He's God, and he actually has the right to do whatever he wants in accordance with his character and his purposes. But I think it does begin to challenge, this is as if we're to desire what God wants, his friends seem to believe that their faith that Jesus could heal that man actually brought healing to that man. My faith that Jesus can save my father, I believe played in to Jesus saving my father. I didn't save my father, but I just did what scripture gives me permission to do, which is ask things in Jesus's name in accordance with his heart and his character. It's God's heart that my dad be saved, then I actually have absolute right to pray for that. And when you're talking about the human will, it is a unique and mysterious thing because I have had moms and dads and and husbands and wives come to me in tears over the years over spouses or children or, or friends that seem beyond saving. And what is impossible for man is not impossible with God. The, the passage that it really strikes me when I think of the sheep and the goats is this. In John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. If he enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief. Now, I've often defined the thief here as the devil, but it doesn't actually, Jesus doesn't actually give, give the title to the devil. He just says, many thieves and robbers have come before me, and though many will come after me. So this doesn't need to be the devil. It's just, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, who? Who's the they? The sheep, right? Are the they? 
in the context. But is it not possible that the they could also include the thief? Two men were crucified next to Jesus. The scripture tells us that they were both what? Thieves. And the one on the left, it says that he railed against Jesus. Mocked Jesus. Said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. He doesn't say Jesus is Lord. He says, prove that you're Lord by saving yourself and then save me. And Jesus has nothing to say to that man. But we're told that the other thief, the other criminal, says this. He says, do you not fear God? So it's fascinating. Two thieves. Crucifixion is the most brutal, ugly death that the ancient world could come up with. I mean, it was horrible. Uh, If you want to get a fascinating overview of what actually is entailed, read Tom Holland's book, Dominion. There's an incredible section on just how awful. Crucifixion was so awful, you almost can't find it in Roman writing because it it wasn't even, it was so foul, it was unworthy of, of giving even, they weren't considered human beings that were crucified. That's like, that's how undignified it was. But here you have two men having a conversation about Jesus across Jesus while they're all dying. And the one thief says to the one who's railing, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed are receiving what we deserve? We are actually getting justice for injustice. But he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now what brought this thief to that conclusion, we don't know. My guess is that he saw the supernaturally natural way in which Jesus endured unbelievable suffering. Maybe he heard Jesus teach at some point. He was well known throughout the land. I don't know. All I know is that he did witness Jesus when nails were hammered through the king's hands and feet with a crown of thorns smashed into his skull and his face beyond human recognition that the words that came out of the Savior's lips was, Father, forgive, rather than, F you, what are you doing? Because I would be like, I will kill you as soon as I get down. That's what I would say. Um, Or I would cry. You know, there's no, because you're dying. But Jesus utilizes this horrible moment as an opportunity to, to ask that God be merciful to these people that are literally hammering nails into the Son of God's hands and feet. And he says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Revealing not the reluctance of an angry father, but revealing the very heart of the Father. This is the whole reason I came. For the joy that was set before him, which was the thief next to him, and the thieves like you and I. It's a fascinating and mysterious thing when you think about the thief on the cross, because he goes on to say to him, and this is one of the only times that just Jesus' human name is used. He doesn't say Lord Jesus, he just says, Jesus, remember me. That's the depth of his understanding of the gospel. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know about you, but when I actually think about that passage, that makes the gospel so mysterious and so beautiful and so profound because literally it's the day the goat became a sheep. It's the day the thief was accepted by the shepherd. And it tells me that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame because you see, yes, Jesus gave the parable of the sheep and the goats, but that's the whole reason he came to the cross is because if he had not come to the cross, everyone would be left in the position of being a goat. The thing is, is that the, goat, the, the sheep weren't like good people and the goats were bad people. It's that one group said yes to Jesus and the other group said no. And there is no distinction and there is no favoritism with God. And the cross puts everyone on the same playing field. And this is why I refuse to preach any other message than that because all of us need to be reminded that we're all at the same place. Without Jesus, we are lost. But God is so good and so gracious that anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What a beautiful passage. That we're all goats that are now called sheep. That we're all thieves that have been actually brought into the fold by the good shepherd. And let me just tell you, I still find myself acting like a thief who wants to kill and destroy sometimes. And Jesus, in his mercy, reminds me, yeah, but you're not, Lord, I am. So in closing, look at the human conduit. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Not all have said yes. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The human conduit, the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of the carrier, the divine and miraculous movement of God into this world and the spirit who draws people to Jesus. How does he actually do it? And friends, the answer is he does it through you and he does it through me. Paul says to the church in Corinthians, in Corinth, he says, for we preach Christ crucified the we is a plurality. The entire community of faith together proclaims the truth of who Jesus is. The power and the beauty and the prestige placed upon us as, a, as broken human vessels who had nothing to bring to the table other than our yes and our sin are the very means by which King Jesus invites other people into his kingdom. The foolishness of preaching is this, is that he uses the foolish things, which is me and you, to confound the wise. The foolishness of the gospel is this, is that not many wise and not many prestigious and not many famous, so there seems to be this unique passion that God has toward the least in the world. I would argue he has the same love and passion for all people, but the least are the ones who seem to understand their need. 
maybe they have less to lose. And there does seem to be the principle that the more you have, the more you desire to protect what you have. And the less you have, the more you have nothing to lose. And this is why people are like, well, of course lots of people in prison come to Jesus because, you know, what else are they going to do? Exactly. If only you would understand that you are in prison without Jesus. And there can be people in prison that are far more free than you, and you know that as well as I do. Because I know what it's like to be imprisoned with my health and my beautiful family and my job when I allow the self to be the center. Nothing enslaves me faster. The power of the gospel is the ability to actually live life with a newfound joy because God has come near. Because the gospel is a proclamation that God actually cares about each one of you. He cares about your brokenness. He cares about your glitchy, dumb self just like he cares about me. And he says, Josh, listen, yes, you're an idiot a lot of the time. I love you. I'm crazy about you. And I'm like, Lord, it can't be possible. And it's like, what the heck do you think I did on the cross for? Wait, why, why did I die if it's not possible? Why did the author of life die so that I could have life if he didn't really love me? And that's true for each one of you. And nothing will inspire you to confess Jesus as Lord if you do not believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because he loves you. Because to raise him from the dead insinuates and, de and declares that he had to die. God died so that you could live. Nietzsche was right. God is dead. But he is wrong. He didn't stay dead. He is risen. It's the great proclamation. As we move toward the incarnation and celebrate Christmas... The day that God entered into the human dilemma, it wasn't just his identification with our humanity. It was his identification with our sin. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Tozer said a spiritual kingdom lies all about us, enclosing us, embracing us, all together within reach of our inner selves, waiting for us to recognize it. God himself is here, waiting our response to his presence. It's, I'm not saying God within you or that you are a part of God. No, the creator must never be confused with the creature. But we also must understand that the creator sustains all that is, including everything that we do. And God is waiting for us to recognize his presence. You know that song that we sing all the time? It's a song I wrote called Enclosed by You. And, I, and I, in that song, I, the chorus is actually God responding to my feeling like I've blown it in a way that God can't forgive me. And in and, and the chorus is God saying, I will never leave you. That I, I'm never, I'm, I'm, I'm always close to you. You're the one that has turned from me. I, I'm just waiting for you to turn around. Jesus is crying out, come to me all you are weary and I'll give you rest. For whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Jesus has come for all and he desires all men to be saved, which means that you and I should desire that and we should pray fervently for that. 
and we are the conduits by which the word who is near makes himself known to a lost world. Notice confession. All of it requires belief and confession. Belief and confession. I believe and I must speak. I, I am loved and I must share that love with others. I am known and I want others to be known. May we open our hearts and minds to the gospel. Amen. Let's pray.